Okay, so you're going to have to help me out. This happens everywhere I go. So you're from Canada. You're going to help me finish my sentence. So you're from Canada. Very good. You guys have done this before. So I say to people, see that apparently the alphabet has 26 letters, but we don't know that up in Canada, okay? And so when we were to name the country, we put all the letters in a hat and we pulled the first letter out. C, A, N, A. D, A. And then, of course, now I live in the USA. So, yes. Uh, I played, uh, see, I went to college. That was a long time ago. I played hockey in college. Can you believe that? Yeah. All right. So now it's too far away. I mean, drive to Wichita from my house is three-hour drive. Now Dodge City, Kansas has a rink, but I'm getting too old. I know there's guys my age that are playing, but they played all along, okay? And I've been out of it now for too many years, but it sure is good to be here, uh, Sterling College. My first time here. I think when my son was in high school, I believe we played Sterling in football. And I'm sure we would have won. <laughs> Somehow, I think we did, because we won state that year. So you've been studying Isaiah, is that correct? And so my passage I've been assigned is Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah is kind of an important book. I think I'll do this. Did I get the color right of the school colors? I tried. I didn't dress up the part, but this tie actually has my, my kids on it. And that's even a long time ago, too, because my kids are now, my daughter's 23, almost 24, married, and my son is 21, he lives down in Missouri, and, and this is when they were little, but they had a picture that they sent to walmart.com, and they made a tie. And my daughter, when she gave it to me for Father's Day, says, Dad, we just want you to know we're always going to be hanging around. <laughs> and I said, what you're trying to do is you're going to choke the life out of me, right? <laughs> but that's actually not true, they're actually not just hanging around, so I miss them. But Isaiah is kind of one of those important books. It's like the Bible. 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, just like 66 books in the Bible. How many in the old? 39. In the new? 27. This is a college campus, so we're going to participate in this talk. All right. So here we go. Uh, Isaiah lived and wrote about 700 years before Christ. And uh, as you study this book, you will have come across some pretty amazing statements. Okay, I think Isaiah could have been a great pastor. He was sent to go talk to people that will not listen to him. Can you imagine an assignment like that? God said to Isaiah, all right, I'm going to call you, Isaiah, and I want you to go and talk to this people, but they're not going to listen to you. Okay, no thanks, I'm done. And it was an interesting assignment, but he made some pretty crazy statements, this Isaiah. 700 years before Christ. Can you imagine someone said, I saw the Lord. What would you think of someone who said, I saw the Lord? Of course, in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, the Bible says, you cannot see God and live. Did he see the Lord? Did he live? How do you square that? Okay, you can't see God and live. The Bible's clear. If he saw God and he lived, how do you put that together? This is a college campus. This is a Christian school. So we're going to do some studying together. Because it answers the question of Isaiah 53. Which is an important question for people today. You see, God is a trinity. Now I hope, and I think you do, you know, it's a Christian school. You don't think that Jesus just started at Christmas, right? 
Right. He didn't start at Christmas. The Bible teaches clear from Genesis on. He always was with God the Father from the very beginning. Matter of fact, during creation, he was there because the Bible says, Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heaven and the earth. Verse 2, and the Spirit of God, right, moved upon the face of the waters. What's verse 3? God said, let there be light. There's the Word of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is the Word of God? Jesus. Jesus has always been. He's always been. As a matter of fact, he even took human form before Bethlehem. That's the one, obviously, that Isaiah saw because you cannot see God and live. There's one part of the Godhead whom you cannot see and live. Then there's someone who is called God whom you can see and live. Is Jesus God? Yes. Did people see Jesus? Yes. Did they live? Yes. So you can see God and live. If that's true... Which one in the Godhead are you seeing? Has to be a, a pre-Bethlehem manifestation or a coming forth of Jesus. Okay, so Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. Here's another statement. That's, that's just amazing. He said, a virgin shall have a son. <laughs> Isaiah, which world which are you born in? These things don't happen. And yet God's sending him to a people that is not going to listen to him. No wonder. I mean, the statements are outrageous. Or are they? And so the people, they were not necessarily surprised that Emmanuel, God with us. God had been with his people. You know, in the Old Testament, when the children of Israel came from Egypt, the Bible says that the Lord went before them. Okay, you're going to help me out. At night in the pillar of fire in the daytime. Pillar of a cloud. So you can look out of your tent. Oh, God's here. God was with his people. God had always been with his people. And God had taken human form. Abraham talked to God in the form of a man. Remember Abraham had, in Genesis 18, Abraham had some visitors, three men. One of them was none other than a pre-Bethlehem appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw God. He talked to him. So the fact that that God would appear in human form, not strange to the people, that God would be with us. Emmanuel means God with us, not strange, but a virgin having a son. That's strange. I mean, this is one of those things. And Isaiah, if you study the whole passage of Isaiah 7, God said, okay, king, ask for me a sign. And I'm going to give you a sign. And you know that when this sign comes to pass... It's, it's one of those God things, right? Who can make this happen? Only God. Only God can make this happen. This is one of those God-sized signs that God gives through, through Isaiah. So the people would be without excuse when the word went around in Israel that a virgin had conceived and born a son. They should have said, aha. We were told about this 700 years ago. But what was their response? They argued with Jesus. John chapter 8 in the Gospel of John. They said, oh yeah, we heard that your mother was pregnant and she wasn't married to Joseph. We're not born of, 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 a, of fornication like you are. That's how they interpreted. They're, they're without excuse. But these are some of the statements that, that Isaiah was given by God. Okay, He said also in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, that of this government... There should be no end. And he lists all the names, Wonderful Counselor, and all those other great names. 
Isaiah 61, he talks about the work of the Messiah. And then here in Isaiah 53, we have the grueling details of how the sinless and pure servant of the Lord would carry the sins of Israel and the world and would sacrifice his own life to atone for sins. Okay, so from the time of this writing until the 11th century A.D., Okay, so you're with me, 1100 years from the time of Christ. The vast majority of Jewish commentators were unanimous in their interpretation of the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, saying it describes the Messiah of Israel. Okay, they were pretty unanimous. He talks about the servant of the Lord here, who offers up his life as an atoning sacrifice. The first to contradict this was... A guy named Rabbi Shlomo Yitzaki, you call him Rashi. He lived in 1041 to 1104. Rashi argued that these words describe the sufferings of the people of Israel for the sins of the world. Okay, so the earliest interpretation that the servant of the Lord described by Isaiah in chapter 53 was the Messiah of Israel. And then later, we have this guy who first contradicted it. And it was right around the, uh, probably affected by the first crusade in 1095. And in the past 200 years, the opinion of the rabbis who embraced Rashi's view takes precedent over the understanding that this chapter refers to the Messiah of Israel. This, by the way, is now the prevailing view. You talk to rabbis and commentators all over the land of Israel. The Jewish people today believe that it's Israel as a servant of the Lord who is suffering for the sins of the world. Or, as the earliest interpretation of Isaiah 53 said, that it was the Messiah of Israel. Okay, so let's look at some of these passages in Isaiah. Isaiah said in chapter 42, chapter 49, and chapter 50, and I'm going to email this to Christian if you want to have these notes, or if you want to write them down fast enough. I I don't know how fast you want to write. He describes the servant of the Lord as a divine personage in these passages. Then you have these passages where Isaiah describes the servant of the Lord as the people of Israel. So you can see Isaiah actually calls the people of Israel the servant of the Lord. But he also calls the Messiah of Israel the servant of the Lord. So which one is it? As as you read the book of Isaiah, you'll have both of these views. So we go now to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 and 14. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Okay, so on one hand, whoever this is, is a servant. Okay, so servants were the lower class of people. They weren't the highest of the high. They were a low class people. So on one hand, he's a servant. But on the other hand, what is he? Exalted, extolled, and very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man in his form, more than the sons of man. He's a servant on one hand. He's exalted, extolled, and very high on the other. Okay, so in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, actually, let's start with John 12, 32. Jesus said to the people, And I, if I be lifted up, I will draw men to myself. John 12, 32. Okay, so in the crowd that heard Jesus speak, 
He says, if I be lifted up, what do you think is their standing of being lifted, their understanding of being lifted up? Okay, so if we went back to John chapter 3 verse 14. Jesus made this statement. He said, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, right? Moses lifted up the serpent. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So in John 12, 32, when the people hear Jesus saying, I will be lifted up, they said crucifixion. And they would have been right. They thought crucifixion. And he was crucified. But Isaiah saw in chapter 6, verse 1, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. So lifted up also has the connotations of being very high or extolled or exalted. So Isaiah sees the servant on one hand, and obviously from 53, suffering greatly for the sins of the people. And at the same time, he sees this servant exalted, extolled and lifted up. So he sees that in the scriptures. Okay, so the people answered him, John twelve thirty four. We have heard that out of the law. John twelve thirty four. the people answered him and said, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. How sayest thou the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Okay, so they went back to probably Isaiah's teachings, and they said, Hey, Mr. Jesus, we know what the law says. We know that the law says that Christ will be will live forever. Remember Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, of his government there shall be no end. And they called him everlasting father. So they were taking some of the scriptures. You know anybody like that who takes some of the scriptures but not all the scriptures? And they build their doctrine. I'm, I run to people like that all the time back in my hometown. Oh, pastor, God is love. God is love. I mean, the Bible says it clearly. It says it all over the place. God is love. But God's also holy. God is also righteous. He's not more loving than he is righteous. He is all righteous all the time as he is all loving and all merciful all the time. How do you bring those together? How can a God who is loving also be a God who is righteous? So 1 John 1, 9, the scriptures teach that if we confess our sin, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right, how can a loving God who is also holy, forgives sinners. Puts their sins away, declares them righteous, fellowships with sinners, adopts them into his family. And when we sinners die, we can be in God's presence forever. He did all that and he never becomes unholy. How does he do that? How is he both loving and faithful and merciful and holy all at once without compromising the other? The answer is the sacrifice of Jesus. He took our sins, just like Isaiah says in chapter 53. And on him, the Lord laid the iniquity of us all. See, people ask me this question. They say, okay, well, I just don't think it's fair that that we're all sinners because of Adam eating one apple. Is that fair? Is it fair that we're all sinners because of one thing that Adam did? Because the Bible says we're all born in sin, right? For all have sinned and all fall short. There's none that's righteous. No, not one. So just like we all became sinners, what's God's plan in transferring all of us as sinners from Adam's sin? Because he was going to transfer back the righteousness through the second Adam, who is Jesus. And transfer back the righteousness that Jesus has upon all of us through one man. We all became sinners through one man. 
And now we're all going to become righteous through one man. It's not like your sin and all of us in this room and my sin and we all need our own Savior. No, no, we all have the same Savior. The one Savior whom God took our sin and laid on Jesus. Our iniquities. And He died in our place. So the people said, they had a false understanding. They, they knew what the law said. Hey, when the Messiah comes, you're going to live forever. What are you talking about? You're going to be lifted up. See, they knew, crucified. They're planning to kill him, aren't they? Because they said, you're obviously not the Messiah. This was their understanding of Scripture. Verse 37 and 38. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who has believed our report? Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our report? Isaiah 53, 1. This was fulfilled, even though he did so many miracles. I mean, it was obvious. He's doing the things that only God can do. This man must be God. Only God can raise the dead, Mr. Jesus yeah, and I just raised the guy from the dead. Oh, only God can, can heal the sick. Uh-huh. Did you see me do it? That means I'm God, right? How can I do the things that only God can do and yet not be God? You see how these people are, 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 are willingly not believing the report. Just like Isaiah said, Isaiah 53 verse 1. But then who has believed our report? Think of it this way. It was a crazy statement to begin with to say a virgin shall be with child. <laughs> And then he goes on to say, well, of course, no one's going to believe our report. You ever felt that way? So that the saying of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he, sp- which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom has the Lord of the arm been revealed? Do you realize that Paul quotes in Romans 10, verse 16? He quotes Romans, Isaiah 53, verse 1. Do you know that Isaiah 53 is quoted seven times in the New Testament? Isaiah 53 alone, seven times that Isaiah 53 is quoted in the New Testament. The book of Isaiah is quoted 66 times in the New Testament, let alone the allusions. And some of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they they were repeating, using, using the same story that they saw from Jesus and applied Isaiah 53. So all the duplicates brings it over 80 times. The book of Isaiah alone is quoted in the New Testament. These people had a lot that was written by Isaiah himself that should have tipped them off as to who Jesus is. So in John chapter 12, now verse 39. John chapter 12, verse 39. Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes, and he hath hardened their hearts, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand nor see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, and be converted, that I should heal them. These things said Isaiah, when he saw his glory. When he saw, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. I saw the Lord, and I saw the glory of the Lord, seated on his throne, high and mighty, and his, his robe did fill the temple. Even though John comes back and says, this fulfills that prophecy of Isaiah. The people still did not believe. So we have to come to this conclusion. In my mind, there's no question. Of course, I don't have time to go through all of it. But when you study. Now, I've made several trips to Israel. And by the way, there's another one that's coming up in February of 2018. 
if anyone is interested, you can contact Christian and get a hold of me. The trip is going to be about 15 or 16 months from now. And we're going to head back over to the Holy Land. But when you travel, um, you realize very quickly that to the Jewish people, the New Testament is irrelevant. You agree with that? You'd have, to, you'd have to start in the Old Testament. So you have to prove Jesus to the Jewish people from the Old Testament. It's a fascinating study. Looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. Absolutely fascinating. And if you, would, if you were my students, I'd have you do an assignment on the book of Isaiah. Find out how many times the book of Isaiah is quoted. Find all of them. Where the, Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament. And it's an incredible thing. I already told you it's about 66 times as high as 85. You take all the duplicates, different versions, use different uh, ways of saying it. So there could be an allusion to it that is not a direct quote. And so you'd have to come to this conclusion from the Old Testament. The servant of the Lord is none other than God himself. It says he will appear in the world as a despised man. Isaiah 53, verse 2 and 3. And although he is God, he will appear in the world as a despised man, although he is God. And so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him for that which was... I'll read that here somewhere. I'll read that up here. That which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Even though he was a servant, even though he was, he was marred in his visage, Isaiah said that, that, that you hardly could recognize him. On the same hand, he was God himself come down to be with the people. Surely, Isaiah says in chapter 53, verse 4 to 6, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as the root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our face from him. Wow, that's quite a description that Isaiah gives. Surely, in verse 4 through 6, he hath borne our griefs and our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The reasons for his affliction as he describes this magnitude of the sacrifice is made on our behalf. He took care of our debt by fully paying the price that God required. Thus he restored the peace between us and God. A spiritual remedy. The only cure for sin is forgiveness. And Peter, by the way, quotes this verse in 1 Peter 2, 22-25. He said, Whose own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we were healed. For all like sheep have gone astray. Peter directly quotes now from Isaiah 53 as well. Verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. Acts chapter 8. Philip had been preaching in Samaria. There's been a great revival going on. And in the midst of all of it, the Spirit of God says to Philip, Go down to Gaza. And there you shall find this Ethiopian who is from Queen Candice or Candace and he is her treasure and he's been to Jerusalem to worship and he's there in a chariot go and find this man so Philip goes and finds this man 
And he applies this Isaiah passage to Jesus in Acts 8.35. And Philip opened his mouth and began at that same scripture. This man was reading Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. He openeth not his mouth. And the man asked Philip. Now Isaiah, when he writes this, is he speaking of himself? Or is he speaking of another man? And so Philip takes Isaiah 53 and applies it straight back in chapter 8, verse 35, at that same scripture and preached unto him Jesus, the servant of the Lord, who bears the sins of the world, upon whom the Lord laid all our iniquities, is none other than Jesus of Nazareth, whom Peter later says on the day of Pentecost, whom you crucified. He's the one stricken for our sins. And it pleased the Lord as he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And you can find that in Matthew chapter 26, uh, verse 3 to chapter 27, verse 4. John introduced Jesus one day when John was at the river baptizing. Here comes Jesus. And John said, there he is, the lamb of God. Why do you call him the lamb of God? Well, for one, the lamb was what was slaughtered on the... Passover. And so the, the lamb was the one that, that the people would bring on the day of, of Passover. Uh, our guide when we were in Israel said that there could be at its height 600,000 lambs slaughtered over Passover season. At its busiest. When they were still doing it. And here comes Jesus. John says as a lamb. As a lamb to take away the sin of the world. God was going to lay on him the lamb of God. See, the rulers of Israel, they didn't want to kill Jesus on the Passover. They said, oh, it's going to cause an uproar. Too many people. We're afraid of what the, what the public opinion would be. There's too many people that follow Jesus. We don't want to do it on the Passover. But he was our Passover. He was the lamb that was to be slain. The very moment they were nailing Jesus to the cross is the very moment the priests were in the temple slaughtering the sheep on the day of Passover. Can you imagine the, to the astonishment of the priest when Jesus died, the veil of the temple tore in half and go, oh, we can't see this. Because the veil was there because there was a holy of holies where God was and you couldn't be in the holy of holies. You had to stay on this side of the curtain. Suddenly the curtain is torn. Oh no, what's going on? I'm sure those people tried to sew that curtain up and put it back together. And God was telling people that I'm done with this Old Testament sacrificial system. These sheep that you're killing that can never take away sin, the writer of Hebrews writes. God was never pleased with it to begin with. God was only pleased with the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. That's cool. He needed his lip balm and someone sent it down. I better tie my shoe so I don't fall here. I still have a few minutes. It's only 1043. You got seven more minutes. All right, Isaiah 53, verse 8. Okay, so here, this one, Isaiah 43 and 44, God's the only one who can forgive and wipe away and blot out sins. John introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world, led as the Lamb to the slaughter. We talked about this already. Here we go, verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Servant of the Lord was not given a fair trial. Isaiah said, who shall declare his generation? No one stood up for him and testified for him. For he was cut off of the land of the living. He experienced a violent death. 
For the transgressions of my people was he stricken. This came upon him because of the sins of his own people. When we went to Israel, we saw these underground caves. This is a place they called Caiaphas' house. Remember, Caiaphas was the high priest where Jesus was taken. And so underneath what's called Caiaphas' house, there's these underground caves. Okay, so here we are in this cave, and we're reading these kinds of scriptures where, where the scripture that says he was taken from prison and from judgment. And it's very interesting. This is the piece that you can't really see it, but see right there? Those, those are grommets where they could take chains and they could tie the prisoners. So it's very likely that when Jesus was taken from the Garden of Gethsemane to await this false trial, he was probably tossed because Isaiah certainly says from prison was he taken. This staircase, see, it's, it's, it's shut off. You can't walk up it. This is believed. Uh, 100% of archaeologists agree. This is the stairs that Jesus walked up from the time that he left Caiaphas' house as they carried him down the Via de la Rosa. And I've walked that twice on the Via de la Rosa. It's very interesting. The way of the cross where Jesus walked with the cross and where Simon came and carried the cross. These actual steps where Jesus walked up. Very, very, very fascinating for me in the land of Israel to visit some of these places. Verse 9. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence. Neither was there any deceit in his mouth. The servant of the Lord was considered a criminal by his people. They treated him as such. Isaiah says that the servant of the Lord will be treated by his own people as a criminal. And they're going to execute him. However, he will receive the burial in a rich man's tomb. How'd that happen? You see, if they could have had their way, how do you think they would have destroyed his body? They would have probably just viciously destroyed his body any which way they could. God had it so that there was a rich man. He said, let's put him in my tomb. And he was given an honorable burial. My philosophy is this. Because he had done no violence, however, he was despised as long as he carried the sins of mankind. After Jesus fully satisfied the demands of God's wrath, God allowed no further abuse of his body. As a matter of fact, in John 19, they came with a spear and they pierced his side. Not a single bone of his was broken. And you can go back to Exodus chapter 12 and the Passover. God's instructions for the Passover lamb. No bone shall be broken. Not a single bone was broken. The soldiers who were professional killers came to the crosses of the three men. And they broke the legs of the first one. And they broke the legs of the second one. And they came to the man in the middle. And they didn't break his leg because he was already dead. Because the prophets had said in the Old Testament, not a bone of his shall be broken. And so when they pierced his side, Not a single bone was broken, and he got the burial. And Isaiah predicted it 700 years earlier, that he would get the burial of a rich man, even though he would be considered a criminal. Verse 10 and 11, It pleased the Lord to bruise him, for he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. That's the resurrection, right there. He shall prolong his days. He'll see his seed. He's going to die, but he's going to be raised from the dead. You can find the virgin birth in the Old Testament all over the place. You can find the resurrection of Jesus all over the place. You can find the the death of Jesus all over the place in the Old Testament. That's why I like the Bible as a whole. The Old Testament predicts the new, and the New Testament fulfills the old. And you take them together. And we have that advantage. See, the people of Jesus' day didn't have the New Testament. 
All they had to go on was the Old Testament. But there's enough there. Isaiah said he'd be treated like a criminal, but he will be receiving the burial of a rich man. He shall see the travail of his seed. He is the eternal Son of God who has risen from the dead and lives forever. This pleased the Lord. See, everyone who believes in Jesus will also prolong his days. That's why Jesus had said repeatedly, whoever believes in me shall not perish. He said in John 11 to Mary and Martha when their brother had died, yet even though he die, if you believe in me, you shall live. He said to Martha, do you believe this? If you believe in Jesus, you too will still experience death. For the wages of sin is death and all have sinned. We're still going to die. But he's taken away the, 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 the wages of sin, which is eternal death. God has laid on Christ our iniquities so that we now can receive forgiveness for our sins. That's why Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And that word eternal is important. Just like it says here, He shall prolong his days, and he shall be satisfied. I love that word, shall be satisfied. Christ was satisfied. Even though he suffered, he found great satisfaction in his suffering. And that was, there was a reason for it. And then we'll end on this verse right here. This is what Peter said, Be it known unto you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you have crucified, whom God has raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set aside by you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He takes the, and I'm out of time, took the prophecy of Isaiah and said, It's Jesus! And I'm done. Thank you very much. God bless.